This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. If you were watching anything last night, uh, newsworthy, uh, you saw that there were protests, uh, I guess, in, in New York and in Oakland, California, Chicago, and many other cities, I guess about a half a dozen cities across uh, America in regard to um, Trump getting elected. I, I personally, I'd like to ask and, and make sure each and every one of them voted because I, I hope they did first. Uh, but to talk about all of this and the fallout the day after, Blaine Haggart is with us, associate professor in the Department of Political Science, Brock University. He's with us now. Hello, Blaine. How are you today? I'm okay. How are you? Great. Thanks for taking the time to join us. So, how are you feeling, Blaine, the day after? <laughs> I'm. Uh, I think, like pretty much everyone, um, I'm kind of. In, I'm still a little bit in shock about the result. Uh, what, what, what struck me, what, you know, some people are saying, oh, you know, you know Clinton didn't see this coming, or, uh, or, you know, someone's claiming I saw it coming, I, I, or they're saying that. But really, in truth, no, like, literally nobody saw it coming, including, including Trump's people. It, it, was, it was a shock for everybody. And so it's, it's, uh, it's taking some time to process this, and especially since, um, based, on it, based on everything I can figure out, this is going to be huge for everybody. You know, the, the only part, I, it is very unexpected, but the only part I didn't uh, find surprising, and, and this was, I've told this story uh, yesterday as well. I'm sitting around the dinner table the other night with my, my family, and my son says, who's nine years old, who do you think is going to win, Dad? And I stopped for a, a few moments, and I thought about it, and I said, I've got a feeling Trump's going to win. And all my family looked at me like I had a square head. <laughs> and the reason I came to that conclusion, Blaine, is because for the last several weeks, months, seems like years, uh, experts like yourself and pundits and whatever, we've all been talking about, you know, how did he ever get this far? How do we ever get this far? And it's like I'm watching someone go up a a ladder of 10 rungs and we've watched them get every uh, step up, every single run or on and on the ninth rung, everyone's saying, well, no way, there's no way they're going to make the 10th one. And it's like, if you if you believe in trending, I think we're all wrong. And the funny thing is, is as soon as the polls open, Hillary never really had the lead, never had the lead. So how did we miss? How did we? How did we? Uh, how did we misinterpret this so much? And, and talk a little bit about polling and, and the biased media and all that stuff that everybody's talking about. Over and above, of course, the fact that not enough Democrats uh, voted. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. I mean, um, you know, uh, even the fact that Hillary Clinton won the most the popular vote that really doesn't mean anything. She won the electoral college, you know, or, or sorry, he won the electoral yeah. college fair and square. Um, yeah, but I mean, when I'm listening to you, what what I get see the thing is is at least I, again I'm trying to figure this out, um, and I know pollsters are trying to figure this out, um, but the thing is polling actually did quite well in the Republican primary, but everyone just kind of kept saying, oh well, it's going to collapse eventually. But I mean, like, Trump was always leading throughout the whole thing, um, and yeah, everything else was too divided. But with this, it was really really unusual um, that everybody misses it. Um, Nate Silver from 538.com was closest, but he still gave Hillary two-to-one odds, which mm-hmm. are pretty good odds. Um, and what sealed it to me that, I mean, my mistake was, in this case, was that I said, okay, well, you know, pollsters, the poll aggregators know what they're doing. They have a good record in presidential elections. But the telling thing for me was it, Trump won Wisconsin. He never led in any of the polls in Wisconsin. So everybody missed something, and so mm-hmm. I think that's what it comes down to. Um, as for the biased media, I mean, like I said, Trump didn't see this coming. Nobody saw this coming. So to, to blame it on the biased media, 
I don't I don't quite buy that. I think it's just a complete failure. Something's wrong with polls. I don't I don't blame I don't blame a biased media for yeah. that, but I think what's obvious now is that the polls are wrong and the media is yeah. biased. I no, think, again, I'm not blaming them for the outcome. At the end of the day, Donald yeah. got the most votes. That's why yeah. he won. And the like real clear politics, which is like, you know, 538.com is kind of like the you know, kind of like the, yeah. the Porsche name of of, of polling uh, of polling aggregators. Real clear, clear politics is the other one. It's Repu- is Republican leading, mm-hmm. and they didn't give Trump a chance. Yeah. They said it's going to go to Hillary. So literally everybody missed this. So and why so- do you think Blaine America spoke yeah. up? And again, I've said this right from the beginning. We've had this discussion before. I thought pure and simple this was a protest vote. People yeah. wanted oh, yeah. to put anybody in there except a typical politician, and you go in and smash the place to pieces, and we don't care how bad. And really, what does this say for poor Hillary, thinking that, yes, this man is everything that is obvious to us all, yet they still chose him over her? Yeah, and and what was remarkable too, when you look at at, at the at the voting totals, um, Trump's is about in line, or it's actually the lowest of anybody over the past eight years, or the past uh, sixteen years, or well since uh, since uh, since Obama in two thousand eight. I mean, he, like McCain got more votes than him, mm-hmm. uh, Romney got more than votes than him, Hillary got more votes than him. But where the missing votes are is on the Democratic side. So why did the Democrats not come out? I mean, um, come on, now they're all protesting in every city from land, from one end of the land to the other. What what happened here? I mean, because right. again, Hillary was down with all ethnic groups. She was down with young people. So what happened? And it wasn't enough. Um, there was a lot of you know a lot of people just kind of said that we don't like this. And I think there's, I mean, people are going to spend, you know, years figuring out exactly what went wrong uh, for, for Clinton and why Trump got so many votes. But it seems to be a combination uh, of a few things. There is, there is like, straight up, it, there, there was a, a kind of a white nationalist, racist, white supremacist vote supporting Donald Trump. Um, so there's that kind of racial resentment there. There is the issue of, of gender, where, you know, people, Hillary is not liked and She's had to deal with gender issues for her whole whole life. There's the fact that she's an establishment candidate at a time when um, she, when a time when people are, are craving kind of change. There's the economic issue where um, you know I was watching the uh, the election with an American friend who uh, know, who knows Michigan quite well, and when she sees Trump doing really really well in uh, the rural parts of Michigan, she said she's not surprised because um, Obama. Uh, essentially neglected that area in terms of uh, infrastructure funding. So there's an economic issue there. And all these things are kind of, in, uh, kind of uh, you know, intertwined. Which one's more important? Um, I don't know. I think, I think that a lot of politicians are underestimating the silent majority. I think a, a yeah. lot of politicians are underestimating just how disenfranchised voters are with the system. And, and, and again... Um, you know, I don't think Americans are all stupid racists. Uh, racists. No. I no. think they did this to send a clear message. And you know what? They weren't proud about it. They didn't want to tell their neighbors. They didn't want to tell the pollsters. But deep but, down, that's what they wanted. Yeah, but that's um, but that's not unusual. I mean, the, the, this is. I mean, the racial factor here can't be ignored. And I mean, it, it's true that it's not. You know that people don't come out and say yes, I'm a racist. Yeah. But there are a lot of racists out there. Yeah. And I mean, this has been probably of all the things that Trump has said in the campaign has probably been the most consistent, which is essentially um, we're we're going to deal with 
we're going to deal with the colored people. So what I what I don't understand is yeah. Blaine is 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 Democrats will feel so strongly about everything you're exactly saying yet yeah. they chose to stay home. Rather yeah. than what you know, so forget Hillary, put your own feelings aside. Right. What about getting this other man Trump out of the White House? How can those people have possibly stayed home and then say these things about race and everything else and blah 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 because in the end uh, as you said, neither candidate was really uh, uh, likable. Neither b- both candidates had less than the, their uh, their previous uh, the pe- the people who ran previously. So they had negative favorability rating. Absolutely. Yeah. So again, what was it about uh, Hillary? How, how can people protest in the streets when they didn't show up to vote and they let this man walk in? Yeah, I mean, I I also would be curious to see if they actually did show up to vote or if they voted for a third party candidate because the other thing too is that Jill Stein and Gary Johnson are the difference between Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in the White House. Yeah, um, but I have to think everybody's smart enough to know if you do that, all you're going to do is split the vote. I mean, I come on. Know, though. I mean, you still get people who, even, even now, you get people who still say that essentially at the end of the day, they're both the same, which is, I mean, I, yeah. I can't wrap my mind around that, but I've heard this, like, you know, talking to, you know, people I know and respect on Facebook. And so that's kind of, that's kind of hard. People do think that. Um, but at the same time, too, the other thing that's that's missing, I think, what you're seeing essentially is that the millennials didn't come out either. Yeah. So, and I mean, you know, we shouldn't be surprised by this because millennials very, or not millennials, but younger voters tend not to come out in elections. But they came out for Barack. Yeah, and he he was a once in a once in a generation uh, candidate. So's Trump. <laughs> this is, hopefully. Hopefully, yes, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, but yeah. So I mean, so there's a lot of that, and also, so there's a lot. The other thing too is there's a lot of there's a lot of blame to go around for this for people who aren't happy with the with the outcome. There's you know there's there's the race issue. There's also you know did, you know you know how seriously should we t- how you know should the Democrats have doubled down on uh, on you know economic issues? I'm not convinced that Bernie Sanders would have done any better. Because that was my next question. Yeah. You think he? There's lots uh, saying I, now if Bernie was in there, he would have uh, mopped the I floor. Don't know. He, 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 but the thing is, he 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 lost fair and square to Hillary Clinton. He could not beat Hillary Clinton. Man, um, so um, I don't know. I mean, I think that a lot of this was was a vote for was a vote for Donald Trump. Was a vote for blowing up the system. Yeah. Uh, what do you uh, make of the protests we're seeing? Uh, we saw last night. Um, hopefully, they don't turn more violent. Uh, I'm not surprised because I mean, this is this is a complete shock to the system. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a political scientist, I'm trying to work through exactly what it means. Um, internationally and for Canada, but for the United States, essentially, you know, there's no reason not to take Trump at his word on things like uh, overturning Roe v. Wade, um, on on deportations and things like this. And a lot, of, it's going. A lot of people are going to be hurt by this. It's, it, um, Do you really Trump, think we're going to see that? Like, I mean, you know, uh, I think we're going to see. Ro- Ro- you know, Ro- like again, again, you know, c- considering all the elections that we've had, mm-hmm. uh, United States, America, uh, United States, Canada, what have you, we all know. You know, again, have all been on the planet long enough to know that the majority of the, of the promises that people keep, uh, are pro- sorry that they make during elections, they don't keep. So That's how how can though. they how can they possibly keep ones that are so bizarre? Well, I don't think it's correct. I mean, someone did uh, an analysis, and Obama, remember Obama was facing, like, an intransigent 
transited Congress for most of his uh, presidency, he managed to implement 75% of his promises, or in one form or another. Well, one form or another is the very <laughs> yeah. is the caveat but, there. But still, it means like what? So, what direction is Trump going to be pushing in? Yeah, and yeah. you know, I think we should do him the honor at taking him generally at his word about what's going to happen. And he, I, he, I, you know, I, I respect that blame, but boy, I can't see that. I really can't. I mean, yeah. realistically, you know, he, he can't build a wall. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And but, you know, but I, he can make he can make life very very difficult for yeah. migrants. He yeah. can, he can, like, you know, get uh, immigrations and customs to, mm-hmm. uh, to get, you know, local police to round people up and do things like that. So things can happen. The other thing, too, is that it's not just Trump. The, one of the reasons why things have been so fractious in D.C. over the past decade has been because the Republicans who have been elected there are, are Tea Partiers. Yeah, and yeah. their view of government essentially is a very kind of no-compromise point of view. They're not... Yeah. So, they weren't very much interested in compromise, like someone like John Boehner, even who you know people think is kind of being a right winger. And but he he was he was willing to play ball because he was a traditional politician, and he gets forced out. Mm-hmm. So what you have essentially is basically three you know the uh, all of Congress, like the House of Representatives and the Senate, and the presidency, all controlled by people who have a very kind of dogmatic, like a very, very dogmatic view of how government should work, and it's one that we have not seen in America before. I find the the fallout and the commentary on it uh, in the last 24, 48 hours absolutely fascinating, and it seems that we live in a land of extremes. Where's the center? Where's the center party? Where is... Uh, where, where, uh, you know, where's the center party that 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 most Middle America, Middle Canada relates to? Um, okay, well, Canada and the United States, you know, to state the obvious, are two different countries. Yeah. Um, with, uh, and uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot about can Trumpism happen here, um, but in the United States, no. It, I think you're absolutely right. It, it is a country where the parties have become so polarized, and again, yeah. this goes dates back to the 1960s when. Uh, when uh, the parties start to sort themselves into left, like left wing and right wing, as opposed to having like you know, uh, like we'd have like you know, red Tories and blue Tories in Canada, um, or, or red liberals and blue liberals in Canada. There, it's Democrats are the left wing, um, Republicans are the right wing. Yeah. Republicans are the white party. Democrats are the party of everybody else. And, and you know, ultimately, ultimately, the candidates that do, that have the most success in both parties are the ones that pull to the center. So why do we not see that? Why do we see extremism like Bernie Sanders on one side and and Trump on the other? Well, the reason is that uh, is that because of this sorting, um, that there are fewer people, there are fewer there are fewer left wingers or, or or moderate or like let's say center left in the Republican Party, and there's fewer center right yeah. people in the Republicans. Right. And to get to become the nominee of the party, you have to become you have to be uh, you have to be an extremist. Mm-hmm. And this is a bigger problem for the Republicans because, as, as we saw, that um, they're o- they only have essentially delegates voting for or, or sorry uh, voters voting for this, and so they're going to be more extreme. In the, in the Democrats, one of the reasons they had the superdelegates is to make sure that if they needed to, they could keep out if, like, for instance, like, uh, like someone who would be like, extremely to the left of Bernie Sanders, got it, who would basically alienate everybody on the center and the center right to make, to make mm-hmm. sure that someone like that doesn't get elected. So it basically comes down to the sorting and the primary yeah. process. So Trump and Obama or Barack Obama meeting today, how do you think that's going to go? Wouldn't you kill to be a fly on the wall of that uh, room? 
my goodness, I think I would be, I'd be too depressed by the whole thing. It's, uh, <laughs> You'd but, be flying towards the bug zapper. <laughs> yeah, where's the fireplace? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that, I imagine what you'll see is that Barack Obama is, is a very, very proper, very dignified, he's a, he's a grown-up. And so he's, he, and he said all the right words as opposed to, you know, with respect to, uh, you know, transitions. Because the big problem in, in a situation like this is how many norms are going to get trampled. And one of the most important norms in a democracy is the peaceful transition of power. Um, this election on, on the Republican side has been all about trampling norms. And so this I see as kind of Obama's chance. He's saying trying to calm people down, kind of trying to model adult behavior and say this is how we act in a democracy. Blaine Haggard has been with his associate professor in the Department of Political Science, Brock University. Blaine, I'm sure we'll chat again about all this. Oh, yes. We'll have a checkup next week. Okay. Thank you, Blaine. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A lot of people are, apparently want to move to Canada since Donald Trump uh, was elected. And, of course, remember uh, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, the radio broadcaster there started, I can't remember his name, but he started a... Uh, a, a a site said, hey, come on up to Cape Breton, and boy, oh boy, Cape Breton has been just riding that wave. Uh, lots of tourism dollars coming out of that. Uh, even some people that have shown interest in moving to Cape Breton. Uh, but we talked to the people from tourism there, I guess, uh, just before the election result, just before the election, and had talked to them months ago, and they were still getting huge interest in Cape Breton, at least from at the very least from a tourism standpoint, and even people willing to uh, move there. Well, apparently, uh, 1.6 million U.S. visitors uh, to Canada's Immigration Department website uh, happened in October. That compares to like about 800,000 the previous year. A 21% increase of website views from the United States, and off and off it goes. So, is this actually happening? Are people seriously thinking about moving to Canada uh, because of an election result? And how how easy is it? Can you just, you know, we can pretty much travel freely between two countries, but how long can you stay before they say, hey, uh, you're bugging us now, get out? How long before you overstay your welcome? Uh, to talk about all of this, Giddy Maman is with us, senior partner of Maman and Sandaluk Kingwell LLP, immigration lawyer, and with us now. Hello, Giddy. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Great. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. So are you getting an influx of people from the United States who want to come to Canada? Yeah, most definitely. Really? Uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yesterday we, uh, uh, we took more than I think we, we've ever had by a long, uh, by a long uh, stretch. Uh, every, every, uh, every four years, there's always a couple of people who are disgruntled about the results of the election, and they, you know, they, they sort of threaten to move to Canada, and then you know, after a week or two, they kind of fizzle out, and we never hear from them again. Uh, but this time, it's really different. You know, people uh, are really, um, uh, it sounds like people feel like they're being pushed out of the United States. They just don't want to participate in whatever journey the Americans are going to be embarking on for the next four years. And the emails and the, the calls are have skyrocketed. And... Um, the tenor of their of the emails and the discussions really reflect uh, a much more committed uh, plan uh, to move. Now, whether in fact they will, uh, you know, I think it's still too early to tell. But definitely, this is different than uh, I've ever seen in 30 years. So, what exactly are they saying to you? Uh, I mean, again, an election is four years. Um, isn't this a little drastic move for that? 
I think so, and, it, and especially, you know, for Americans, because Americans are really, really patriotic, I think, generally speaking, and uh, they have a tremendous love of country. And uh, for this election to prompt them to seriously uh, consider this is, is you, you've got to ask yourself, you know, uh, um, you know, is, is this journey really that, that dramatic that you have to give up everything, your, your job, your, your home, your, you know, your, your kids, you're going to relocate them, they're going to have to make new friends. And it, it's just crazy to think. But yes, there are people who are claiming to be very, very serious about doing just that. Wow. Uh, is there a common denominator with any of these people, other than the fact that, of course, they're disgruntled Americans? Well, they they all have uh, referenced the election. I mean, you know, they just talked about the instance of the last few days, the election results, whatever, and then they talked about their uh, themselves and their qualifications. And to be honest with you, the ones that I did read, uh, I, I didn't read all of them, but the ones that I did read, they they seem to be typically uh, professionals uh, who uh, just want to relocate. They don't. It, it, it almost seems like they don't even want to talk about the election. They just want to reference the election. Mm. They don't want to have a discussion. That's it. I'm out. That sort of attitude is what we're seeing. Do you think maybe Getty that uh, there's other reasons and the election was perhaps the tipping point? I don't know. Um, just before the election, we didn't hear of. Mm. We didn't see any kind of spike. I mean, we just you know. There's lots of Americans who come to Canada to live permanently for various reasons, either for jobs that they've been offered, uh, maybe they married a Canadian or something. So mm-hmm. we always have Americans inbound. But, you know, I, in fact, I should tell you that while I was watching the returns on CNN, I think it was about 12 or maybe about half, uh, half past 12 in the evening, my emergency line went off because we have a 24-hour emergency, and somebody called the emergency line <laughs> to talk about, you know... <laughs> What did they want you to do? What did they want you to do? Go down and pick them up at the border? I, I don't know, but I said yeah, I reminded them that our emergency line is just for people who are actually arrested at the border <laughs> or picked up by immigration on the street. I, I explained uh, very gently that uh, uh, this was not really an emergency; that you have to call somebody at, at midnight to discuss. So you can call us in the in the morning, and we can chat about it then. So, what's your take on that? Uh, there's a lot of anger. You know, if, if you've been watching the news, I'm sure yeah. you have. There's people on the street. Yeah. Very terrible things are being said from both sides of uh, the street. This has got to, this can't go on. Yeah. I, I just hope it's not going to escalate and it's got to settle down. Uh, but I think people really have to ask themselves if, this is, if, if they can be serious about this. Look, I'm not here to sell Canada. I don't, I don't go around telling people our country's better than yours, come to ours. That's yeah. not the business that I'm in. But if you have made that decision and you determine that Canada offers you a better future, then I'll, by all means I'll help you out. But uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really sad when somebody feels that the decisions of their countrymen is pushing them out mm-hmm. of a country that they would otherwise uh, live in you know, uh, their remaining years. Uh, and so I think there's a bit of pain. I hope that that will uh, subside, and I hope that, uh, uh, of course, the, 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 the president-elect will bring everybody together and, and, and make sure that everybody feels included, because right now it's clear that many, many people do not feel included. And uh, like I said, you know, Canada's always been here for the Americans, and America's always been there for us. And, you know, if you remember 9-11, mm-hmm. when there was all these planes, they, they needed somewhere to land, they, they came to Canada, we greeted them well, we've always had very friendly relations. 
Uh, we're certainly not looking to poach their citizens or anything, but if, if some of them, you know, just feel that there's no future for them in the United States, well, Canada's an option. Uh, they should know that, um, you know... Let, let's talk about that. How, how yeah. easy, what is the process for a U.S. citizen to come to Canada? And then we'll talk uh-huh. about the reserve, the reverse, okay. but what, how, do, how do they come here? Okay, so first of all, let's, let's be clear. The Canada system... Uh, is um, a neutral system. It's a blind system. It doesn't care about your skin color, your nationality, your faith, or your religion. You don't get any points for that. Mm-hmm. So Americans have no advantage over anybody else for permanent residence. Now, for temporary work permits and stuff like that, under NAFTA, they get favorable treatment. Now, so wait a second. Let me interrupt there. Sorry to interrupt, but um, you said there's no preferential treatment, uh, sex, uh, uh, color of skin, religion, all that sort of thing. Right. What about uh, people from America specifically? I mean, does the right. UK and, and people in America take pre- precedence? Do they get no. an easier ride? No, absolutely not. For permanent residents, everybody's the same. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you are uh, an architect, you have a degree, you're 35, you're married, uh, you have five years of experience, whether you're from Russia, China, America, Venezuela, makes no difference. You mm-hmm. all get exactly the same amount of points. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking people. We're looking for people a who've got post-secondary education, a degree or a diploma. Uh, we're looking for people who are in their 20s and 30s. We're looking for people who have uh, some work experience in a uh, of, of a professional level, managerial, executive, uh, you know, uh, technology. Uh, high-skilled trades, things like that. Uh, and then language, of course. You have to have a language test. So the Americans will fare well because they're going to score well on language. Many of them are educated, so they're going to, they're going to score well. But there's no line for nationality, and we're mm-hmm. going to give you extra points. That doesn't exist. So, in essence, what happens is uh, we give you uh, a bunch of points based on your criteria. You, 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 you punch that in on our online express entry system. You just punch in your name and all of your details. Mm-hmm. And, for, you know, we, we sort of trust you on that. And then the system gives you a certain amount of points. Then you get thrown into this pool. We call it the express entry pool. And what happens is the, the guys with the most points, they float to the top. And every few weeks, uh, every month or two, the government comes and skims, you know, a thousand or so people off the top that are at the highest, who have the highest points. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe another month or two goes by, you wait and you wait. And you can sit in that pool for a year. But if you don't get picked, you get, you get kicked out and you have to re-enter your data in the system to reflect that you're still interested. Mm. Now, if you do get picked, if you score high enough, it's a competitive score, right? If you have a competitive score you're going to receive a letter from the government saying, hey, you can apply for permanent residence. That's the point where you now have to come up with all your documentation to show that you, in fact, have a degree, that you have the language that you claim to have, that you have the experience that you claim to have, that you have no criminal record, no medical problems. And if everything checks out, you become a permanent resident of Canada. Uh, How long does that whole process take? It could take, you know, anywhere from as little, little as, let's say, six months to a year or more. It depends on the cases and it depends on the sort of time that you apply. But call it about a year. Uh, what's the difference between permanent resident, non-resi- uh, non, uh, not a permanent resident, and someone who's applying, you know, the old days they called it the green card, where you can go in and work? Uh, how does that all break down? Okay, so if you're familiar with the term PR card or permanent resident card, uh, that is the Canadian version of the green card. Right. So if, if you're living in the States with a green card, you have the right to live there you know, forever. You can't vote, mm-hmm. and if you commit crimes, you can get kicked out. So it's exactly the same thing with our PR card, with our permanent resident card. So if you, you, know, if you commit a crime or if you don't live in Canada, 
uh, you, you don't really uh, reside here because we have a residency obligation, then you can lose your status. So do you have to be a, or have a PR card in order to have employment here? No, you could have a temporary work permit, mm-hmm. but once you become a permanent resident of Canada, of course, you can live in Canada, you can work in Canada, you can study Canada, in Canada, so you have all of those benefits if, rolled up into that one card. If you're coming in on a, you've got a temporary work permit, is the chance that you'll get a permanent, residi- a permanent residency greater? Uh, yes. If you have Canadian work experience, that's going to give you a certain amount of points. Mm -hmm. So that's going to increase your ability to float high in the pool and increase your chances of being skimmed in when they do do a draw. So when people are calling you and inquiring about moving to Canada, what's the first step for them? What what do you say to them? (laughs) Well, the first step is that we... we, uh, uh, we respond with a questionnaire, right? Like, who are you? Do you have mm-hmm. any medical problems, criminal problems, education, language skills, and all that? And we, we, when they reply, we take a look at them, and very quickly we can sort of rule you out. So if you do have a criminal record or a medical problem, uh, we rule you out right away. And if everything checks out, then we, you know, we quote them a fee, and we, uh, we, we, if they agree, then we start collecting all of the hard documents to prove all of those things. We verify all the documentation. We get them to uh, do a language test. Uh, we help them get their um, uh, credentials evaluated, and if everything checks out, then uh, then we you know we uh, upload their profile to the Express Entry Pool, and we keep our fingers crossed. You talked about how uh, being put into the Express Entry Pool. These are prime candidates, exactly what the government's looking for. You said twenty to thirty years of age, uh, post-secondary degree, this sort of thing. What if you fall outside that that uh, criteria? Do you still have a chance, or is it just that your chances are lower? So uh, your chances are lower. Uh, there are there are. Of course, people in their 40s can apply, but they start losing uh, points for age, so it makes it more difficult. But of course, you know, you have a guy with a PhD with a very, uh, very high level of experience. You may have a province that is willing to offer him uh, employment, uh, uh, offer him permanent residence because of his background. They happen to be looking for people with those kinds of skills. So the fact that you're in your 40s is not a bar for immigration to Canada at all. And you know, many of our uh, of our clients who are applying. Uh, are in their 40s. But we just, you know, uh, we, we have to handle those cases a little bit differently. What is the cutoff? I mean, you know, we hear lots of people who are against immigration saying, well, people come in and then they bring their can- grandparents in and then we got to pay for all of that and blah, 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 blah. What, is, what well, is the cutoff? Well, there is no cutoff. Theoretically, there there is no age limit where you no longer qualify for immigration. You know, for example, our investors, et cetera, some of them are a little bit older, but they're bringing uh, lots and lots of money to Canada mm-hmm. uh, for investment purposes. So, uh, you know, those the provinces want those money, those, those funds. They want those investment dollars. Uh, they want his business acumen, his or her business acumen. Right. So, so we're not really concerned that they're not in their 20s or 30s. Um, but in terms of sponsoring, like if, if, if you or I wanted to sponsor our parents uh, from overseas, uh, again, there is no limit on their age as long as they're healthy and as long as we're willing uh, to uh, guarantee that they're not going to be uh, collecting social services, mm-hmm. uh, then they can come. But but the government doesn't want to be paying uh, for for the privilege of us bringing our parents here to Canada, right. nor do they want to be saddled with the medical costs that are uh, 
uh, that you know were um, were foreseeable. You talked about people uh, obviously calling you at all hours in order to start this process. At what point do people go? All right, I'm out. Like, do they go so far and then you said they they seem to drop off? Is there a point where they go where they realize what they're about to do? Yeah, and, and I think we're a pretty good filter for that because before we do much work, they're going to have to give us a retainer. You yeah, know, and uh, we're not going to do this for free. Yeah, and uh, as soon as that, you know, as soon as people have to dig into their pockets, then they, we, we we figure out if this is, you know, somebody's just just being hot-headed for the moment, uh, or if they're real serious. And if they if they give us money. Uh, uh, for the initial retainer, that's it. They're, they're usually going through with this. If an American is coming to Canada, 20 to 30 years of age, the express pool, all that sort of stuff, what would the cost be? Legal fees, there are different advisors charge different things, but generally from a very low of uh, 3500 to maybe about uh, six or 7000 with a median at around four or $5,000 is generally what I think Canadian lawyers are charging for this kind of service. Now, what about going the other way? How difficult is it for uh, Canadians to do the same thing in America? Well, the Americans uh, basically have either an employment-based uh, or family-based immigration, to, uh, immigration plan. So if you have an employer there, uh, that's basically your, your big ticket in. Um, and if you're getting married to somebody or if you're being sponsored by a close relative in the United States, that is typically the way you do it. Uh, they don't really have this type of pool system that we have and this point system that we have for professionals. Uh, any uh, traffic going the other way, or is it all coming here? I, I would say it, it's, uh, it's fairly balanced relative to our respective numbers. It'll take a 10 to 1 sort of um, a ratio. And that's because, you know, culturally we're very similar. We're very, um, you know, we, we, we cross the border a lot. And lots of Canadians meet Americans and they get married. So sometimes yeah. they, they come here and sometimes they go there. And you have a Canadian person who is transferred to an, an American a subsidiary or parent company. And, you know, they want to continue their career. And then after a while they get comfortable in their job and where they're located. And they decide just to stay. So there's a lot of that going on. And uh, I think it's, it's always pretty balanced. Uh, but I, I should tell you, I can't imagine that the levels of uh, interest uh, can exceed what we had yesterday. And I mean, I think in the coming days, people will settle down, and those numbers are going to start to trail fairly quickly. Are you start? Are you seeing this trends to other uh, peers that are in the same business as you? Are they all seeing it? I, I think so. I've seen quite a few of my uh, my, my colleagues who've been quoted in the press uh, who are experiencing. They're experiencing the same thing. I, I can't imagine that anybody else would, would, would any other law firm would be uh, experiencing a different situation. There is a real palatable um, uh, disconnect with where it is perceived America, America is going. And uh, I think that they're calling lawyers, Ameri- lawyers just like myself, right across Canada, depending on where people want to go. Uh, here in Toronto, we, we get a lot of people who are in, you know, who are professionals, uh, I'm sure lawyers who deal with the rural areas, et cetera, uh, west, maybe they're experiencing, uh, you know, interest from the United States at the same sort of rate that we are, but people who are interested in those kinds of regions uh, more than they are in, let's say, a city like Toronto. Fascinating. Just some of the fallout of the U.S. election. Uh, Giddy Man, uh, Maman has been with us, senior partner, founder of Maman, Sandaluk, Kingwell, LLP. They are immigration lawyers. Giddy, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated, and uh, don't work too hard. My pleasure. Thank Thank you. you.
You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, a petition has a petition has been started by a naval reservist to move the HMCS Haida from Hamilton to Ottawa. What is the history? Let's uh, a lot of new Hamiltonians may not even realize that the Haida is in our fair city. To talk more about all of this, uh, Mike Vensel is with us, director of education for Friends of the HMCS Haida. Andy is with us now. Hello, Mike. How you doing today? Uh, not too bad. Uh, first of all, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Are you surprised to hear that someone wants to move this ship? No, no. It, it's been all going on for a while, and, and there's always somebody who want to move it. Uh, a while back, somebody was going to buy it and uh, cut the top off and put a shopping mall underneath, and it just everybody comes up with all these ideas. I don't know where they get it from. So wait a sec. I, I got to elaborate on this. Somebody wanted to cut the top off and make a shopping mall out of it? Well, there was rumors of moving it somewhere and putting it uh, shopping underneath and keeping the top. And wow, it's, uh, fine, right where it is. Wow. So, uh, tell us the history of the Haida. Give us some background to people who, uh, who are new to Hamilton and may not be aware of this. Well, HMCS Haida was uh, commissioned on August thirtieth, nineteen forty-three, and it was uh, one of uh, the four Canadian tribal-class destroyers that the British built for us. Uh, its sister ship, Athabaskan, was sunk. Also, they had HMCS Iroquois and Huron were over there with them. Uh, the Haida actually has got the, one of the best records in the Navy. It uh, sank or destroyed 14 enemy ships and submarines uh, with the loss of only uh, two lives. And it only got hit a couple times. And I'll, you come aboard, I'll show you where the bullet holes were. Oh, man. <laughs> So and, how, co- uh, how come this ship survived? Just luck of the war? It was called a lucky ship. Yeah. Now, its sister ship, the Athabascan, when it was going out on patrol every night in the English Channel, it was sunk on the 29th of April, uh, 1944, with the loss of uh, 125. Hmm. I believe 40 survived, uh, were picked up by the Haida, and 83, I believe, were uh, captured and a few died in the prisoner war camp. But the Haida stuck with it, right, picking up uh, the ones in the water and finally had to leave because of the shore batteries from the German guns. So it's quite the story. You'll have to come down and see it. Hmm. So what? Uh, so how, did, how was it decommissioned? How did it get to Hamilton? Well, after the war, it uh, stayed in the Navy, and it was out of commission for a bit. They uh, changed a few things on it they, after... Uh, the 4.7 guns were taken off, and they put uh, high-angle 4-inch guns on, and they put a 3-inch 50 on, and then it went to Korea for two tours. Uh was in the Train Busters Club, which was uh, the North Koreans used to bring the supplies down along the coastline, and the Canadian ships would go, and the British and Americans and the Australians would uh, pick the trains off as they came through the tunnel. And it became a competition, sort of, between the navies who could whack the most trains. And Haida was up there, but uh, they didn't get the first prize. But they still got to paint the engines on the B gun deck. Hmm. And uh, after that, it was in uh, the United Nations or the NATO, and uh, until 1963 when it's decommissioned, and a group of people got together and saved it, brought it to Toronto. And eventually the Ontario government got it. Uh, I believe the Ontario, the federal government bought it from them and moved it to Hamilton. Uh, Sheila Copps had that done. 
So uh, why did it end up in Hamilton as opposed to some other place? Well, when they brought it to Toronto, it was uh, private, uh, privately owned for a while, and then they made it into like a secret uh, summer camp. Mm-hmm. They cut things open and they put mestex in and foods, and uh, they all slept in hammocks like real sailors used to. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when it brought back to Hamilton, over the last 13 years, we've been putting it back to the, its original mm-hmm. uh, state, so it's kind of... We don't want to see it moved anywhere where they're going to do something else again with it, try to move it somewhere or whatever, because right now it's as close as you can get to being what it was in uh, 1963. Hmm. So uh, what do you know about the people from Ottawa that are trying to bring it there? How, I mean, is this even possible? Is it possible to move this thing? No, it's number one, you can't take it out of the water. If you take it out of the water, it'll fall apart. Yeah. Because it's built to be in the water. That's what holds it together. Uh, the plates are only three inch thick. Steel. Explain, explain that to us, Mike. Why is? What do you mean it was built? I know it was built to go in the water, obviously, but but explain why it would come apart if you lifted it up. Well, if because the plates were that's what keeps it in. It's riveted. Yeah. I'm not too good on this, but this is what I was told that you'd have to keep it in the water because the buoyancy that's what keeps it there. Right. Uh, if you move it out, it just eventually it'll all rust, right. crumble, and then the, it'll just fall apart. This way it stays together. They've been It's in dry dock right now getting repaired. Mm-hmm. It should be in great shape in uh, May when it opens up again. And everybody should come down because understand it'll be free for the 150th anniversary of Canada. So that's, I guess, why they this person wants it moved to uh, Ottawa is part of the 150th anniversary celebrations. But gee whiz, can't we do the same thing here? Well, this is the thing... Uh, it, it would be nice. I'd like to see it as a, a flagship or the ceremony, a flagship of the Royal Canadian Navy. That could probably be done. But moving it to Ottawa, I have no idea how they're going to do it because you can't put it on a truck. The thing weighs uh, empty, about 1,950 tons. Hmm. It's 377 feet long. It's high. You'd have to cut it all up and reassemble it. Or you can't get it up the Ottawa River. Yeah. And once you got it up the Ottawa River, how would you get it into the museum? Like, this is a pie-in-the-sky thing, and it's really nice in Hamilton, because when you go down there in a day like today when it's windy... Yeah, it looks beautiful. rocking and rolling, and it feels like a ship. (laughs) What does it take to keep this thing up? How much work is it in just keeping it, uh, what you're doing with it now, and open every season? Well, we we have to... The volunteers come down, they shine the brass, and uh, I used to be electrician Navy, so I help out there, and there's uh, Jim Brewer and Marg Mathers are two of my... uh, helpers or not my helpers i'm their helpers actually and uh, jim was a ship's keeper for about 11 12 years and, and we did a lot of work restoring all the electrical stuff going into it and Marg took care of the engine room a lot of the equipment still works so it's nice when the people come down especially the young people and you show them uh what it was like 60 70 years ago how much of it actually works? How, how, it, well, we got radar sets work, radios work, uh, a lot, all the fans work, most of them. I mean, it's just uh, basically because we just keep it maintained like we used to 55 years ago. Hmm. And and talk about the engine room. What's What condition is that in? Yeah, you can't fire up the engines because the boilers are rot, rusted. But yeah. uh, you can, Marg Mathers is uh, one of the, first lady engineers that went to sea back in the 80s mm-hmm. and he allowed women going to sea and she's kind of down there uh if you want a tour you go down and see her she'll give you a tour 
because uh, it, it explains everything, how it all works. The diesel still runs. Uh, there's a few things on it that are working pretty good. So it's uh, the guns are fired. The four-inch guns forward still work. So uh, it's nice to see for the young people to come down there and see a ship, what it's really like. And what about the cost? How do you keep this thing running every year? Is it much cost to keep the upkeep? How do you... How do you... Oh, well, that, that you'll have to talk to Parks Canada because yeah. uh, we're not involved with that. We raise money for the Friends of Haida. Right. But uh, it, it's enormous, I'll tell you, because it's not cheap when you... Right now, it's sitting at Heddle Marine in a floating dry dock, and that doesn't come cheap. No, I can imagine. Millions. So what is it like when young people come aboard? What do they say? What, what's their first reaction? Well, uh, they think in terms of nowadays. Yeah. And when you show them, we got some old uh, signalmen there, and they show them the Morse code, which they don't use anymore. We have the signal flags that uh, these guys show them. I show them the electrical stuff, and Jim shows them in the radio room. Mark takes them through the engine room. It's really a tour, and we got a, about uh, 40 volunteers there that'll give you a pretty good tour and idea of what's going on. Plus, Parks Canada has young people that come down there in the summer, and uh, they're pretty knowledgeable to give a tour. So uh, I'm looking at a picture of the boat right now, and I've certainly you know drove by and oh, seen wait it. Wait a minute. Ship, sir. Ship. I'm Not sorry. Oh, I'm. <laughs> I stand corrected, Mike. I'm, I apologize. Also, another thing that drives me nuts when people say the HMCS Haida. Oh. You never call a ship like that. All you say is HMCS Haida. Hang on a sec. I'm making these notes right now here, uh, Mike. So I'm not screwing things up here. All right. Uh, this ship. Describe as you, as you look at it from bow to stern. What is on one of these things? Is it just a floating piece of machinery with guns and da da da? Uh, you know, is it crew quarters? Is it what? What is the bulk of this ship? What's on there? Well, it is the machinery and the guns and the equipment, but you, which takes you back uh, years ago. That people like a lot of the young people don't know what a typewriter is. You got to tell them it's like a keyboard, you know. <laughs> and, and same as I tell them that we got a walkie-talkie there, you can talk four miles. Now you can talk around the world in your cell phone. Yeah. So it's, it's a good educational tool for them. Uh, the shells were put in by hand. They all weigh 68 pounds. By the way, everything's inches, pounds, and all that stuff because uh, that was before we changed the metric system. And uh, especially the crew quarters. There's uh, one mess deck, which is where the crew lived, ate, and slept, and the whole works. Uh, holds 50 people. You slept in hammocks. Yeah. And they look at you like, where did you get 50 people in here? Because it was the size of somebody's bedroom. So it, it's real interesting. It's something that they go back into history and see how it was back in the day. Mike Venzel has Mike Venzel yeah. has been with us. He's the director of education for Friends of HMCS Haida. The ship, of course, now is in uh, dry dock and getting work and getting work done on it. But we'll be back uh, opening up in May uh, for tours. Mike, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're quite welcome. All right, take care. Uh, worth seeing. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Joining us now is Patrick White. He is the founder, executive director of Project Naval Distinction. I don't want to point fingers, but I think he's the guy that wants to try to steal our Haida, and he's with us now. Hello, Patrick. How are you today? I'm very well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. So tell us about the project and, and, and what exactly you guys are trying to do, Patrick. 
Absolutely. Well, first of all, I am delighted to hear that we're talking about HMTS Haida. Tomorrow is Remembrance Day. This is the exact kind of conversation that I'm glad that we're having right now. The main inspiration for this project is centered on proper recognition for all branches of our Canadian Armed Forces. I'm proud to say that uh, I serve in uniform myself as a Naval Reserve Officer. And coming from the nation's capital, you have there senior decision makers in the government, senior decision makers in the military, and a window into television sets, computers all across the country. I mean, this is something where when the Prime Minister lays a wreath or the Governor General attends a ceremony, those images are broadcast to Lloydminster, Saskatchewan, Red Deer, Alberta, Flin Flon, Manitoba, Happy Valley, Goose Bay, and you name it. So what we see right now is that when you attend the National Remembrance Day ceremony, you'll see that the Army has their artillery, you can feel the boom, you can, you can see the smoke, the Air Force has their fly past, feel the roar of the jets. Unfortunately, what's missing is our senior service, the third branch of our armed forces, and that's the Royal Canadian Navy. So discussions have always kicked around as to what could you do about that? What, what kind of representation could you have? And, you know, I've, I've spoken with some folks in the Navy, and they were telling me, well, you know, we have a monument, and there's a bell on Parliament Hill somewhere, and I'm sorry, the, the best thing that Canada has is it's fighting a ship. That's HMCS Haida. So part of the thinking is it's Canada 150 next year. What can we do to give Haida proper recognition? First thing I'd like to see, and I think uh, friends of HMCS Haida, some of the folks who have been commenting, there's a status that we could give it that would give it that proper recognition, and that's naming it the flagship of the Royal Canadian Navy. Mm-hmm. Second thing I think that most people can agree on is producing a commemorative coin that has what I've called the tri-service icons of excellence. That's Vimy Ridge, representing the Army, Billy Bishop, representing the Royal Canadian Air Force, and HMCS Haida, representing the Royal Canadian Navy. It'd be something that'd be great and truly captures the idea that we are a tri-service. We have three branches of our military, and they've all produced world-leading excellence throughout our history. Now, the third part, and as part of the petition, is I'd like to see that we can have this formal link between HMCS Haida and the Canadian War Museum. That doesn't necessarily mean that it would have to be relocated, but here's the reason that I think that at least we should discuss what kind of options exist and that we shouldn't leave anything off the table. The War Museum in 2014 and 2015 saw 425,000 visitors. To put that in perspective for you, that's almost 81% of the population of the entire city of Hamilton. Now, HMCS Haida in that same period saw a little over 14,000 visitors. So that means in one month, the Canadian War Museum sees more visitors than Haida does all year. Now, what I have a problem with that is, is that Haida has a tremendously incredible story. I mean, I can't thank the volunteers and the veterans enough who were involved and who served in HMCS Haida for sharing their stories, for contributing to that, that history. But what we have is a, a gap in terms of how it can be shared and how it can be recognized. And this is a tremendous opportunity to have discussions about what we could do to improve that. Uh, I can I can so I, I can completely see your point, Patrick. But uh, again, we've just been talking to the guys from uh, friends of uh, of the Haida, and and they said like you know this is a horrendous cost, and that you you can't basically move this thing. How do you get it to Ottawa? You can't float it up the river. Well, here's the thing. I'm I'm certainly someone who isn't daunted by ambition. I'll tell you that much. When it comes to the things that we've achieved as a country, I know that 
when the Prime Minister was elected recently, he said, in Canada, better is always possible. And I completely agree with Prime Minister Trudeau. I think that we should never give up on having those discussions. So on the issue of actually moving it, I'd like to see the government put together a team that's rela- that has all the various folks from different departments and say, look, if we wanted to do this, how would we do it? Let's come up with a proposal. Let's come up with a cost. And then we can actually evaluate it on the facts. Where where would where would you put it? The Canadian War Museum is located right along the uh, the Ottawa River. Yeah, I've been there. I know there'd be some perfect place in the waterfront, which means you could connect it right to the museum. You could take advantage of the washrooms, the gift shop, all the infrastructure. The but you would have space. to move it there by truck, would you not? Probably that's what would happen. But as I said, we need to get a team of people together that can come up with the best way to do that. And I think part of why I was inspired to start this project at the time that I did is because. As you mentioned, the hide is right now in dry dock. It's going through repairs. So if there's any time to look at what changes might have to be made or, or adjustments to it, this sounds like a perfect opportunity, especially considering most Canadians are focused on commemorative initiatives but related to Canada 150 coming up next year. But from what I understand, uh, and again, you know, I, I certainly don't know any background of, of, of what it would take to move it or, or any of that other than what I've, I've, I've learned from the people, from the friends of, uh, of Haida. But um, like this cost proportionally to what you would get out of it, I understand is absolutely horrendous. Like you're talking about moving a warship over land. Well, like I said, First of all, I'm not daunted by ambition. I think that I don't think I don't think anybody's daunted. I don't think anybody's daunted by the ambition, Patrick. I think what they're daunted by is the sheer cost of it all. Well, I'd, I'd be interested to see if, if the Friends of HMCS Hyde had any specific costed out proposals or examples that they could provide. I know that I well, I, I think that's up to you. Up. Isn't that up for you to provide, Patrick? You're the one that wants to move it. You should be coming to them and saying, "Hey, can we take it? It would only cost us this much to move." Well, that's what I'm saying is that. What we need to do is we get a team together and we consider what options exist, and we actually come up with that figure. As I said, if, if there are figures out there now, I would, I would certainly be open to it. I, I actually I was speaking uh, speaking with the friends of HMCS Hyda via satellite phone when I was on deployment uh, earlier this year. So I, I certainly appreciate that I've had opportunities to to hear that from them. But what the result could be is that we look at it and we actually come to the same conclusion. We say, you know what, this is too much to move. This would be a detriment to it. But what we could do is maybe see a transition where we have support from the Canadian War Museum, where they provide historians, they provide museum curators, there's an exchange of artifacts on an ongoing basis so that more of an audience can be receptive and and actually participate in the sharing of the Haida story. Because right now, the Haida is is considered a national historic site, which falls under the jurisdiction of Parks Canada. But a lot of those preservation teams, historians, museum curators, like I mentioned, they're actually in the Department of History, and Mm. in the Heritage Canada, rather. So if there's some way that we can do that, and that's why I chose the wording and the petition very specifically. Even if there are folks who said, you know what, I'm a proud Hamiltonian, I'd love the ship to stay here. I can still support this petition because I understand that this is about yeah. recognition. For it's the all about the Haida. Yeah, exactly. It's about it, and and you know I I understand. Patrick, the, I got to cut you off there. We are simply out of time. We are right <laughs> ag- against the the clock here. Patrick White, founder of executive director Project Naval Distinction, talking about what to do with the Haida. Of course, with the 150th anniversary coming. The Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.